The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Good morning, everybody. Well, it's a real privilege to be here and to get to preach God's Word. You are, you know, I'm no Kylum, so, you know, set the bar. Um, but I do love Kylum and super thankful for him and his friendship um, towards me and um, our church. So greetings from Coomera Baptist Church. We uh, think of you guys here. We pray for you guys um, semi-regularly in our services. So it's a privilege to get to kind of come up north and obviously preach God's Word. If you've got a Bible, please grab it. Turn to the book of Judges in chapter 3. So book of Judges, chapter 3. I'm going to be reading from verse 12 down to verse 30. Okay? All right. Hear now God's word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went, <coughs> pardon me, and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back to the idols sorry, turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ead came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat and Ehud reached with his left hand, took his sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord, dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols, and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And, they, and he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. 
So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow one, anyone, to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Let me pray. Fathers, we come before your word um, now. All of your word is, is God-breathed, useful for training us, teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, so that we might become more and more righteous and even a passage like this. So we pray for your help right now. Pray that you'd help me to preach it faithfully, truthfully. And I pray that you'd, all give, you'd give us all ears to hear your word this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder what you're thinking right now. <laughs> you wouldn't be blamed to be thinking, you had the whole Bible to choose from. You know, you had the whole Bible and this is what you've come up with. You've got Judges chapter 3. I admit this passage is not the most obvious choice. Actually, in fact, I've never chosen it as a choice as a sermon to come and guest preach with. But here we are nonetheless. It might teach Kylam a lesson to not just say preach the Bible. Um, he might just be a bit more specific next time and say, preach that bit of the Bible. But here we are. Who can say? But who can deny this is an amazing story, isn't it? I mean, it's a great story. I don't know if you remember hearing it for the first time. I don't remember the exact moment, but I do remember the feeling of like, wow. There was like this king that got stabbed and the, 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 the fat closed over this sword. And, and I just remember thinking, that's a great story. But not just that that's a great story. That's... It, what was amazing to me is not that it's an amazing story. I'm amazed it's in the Bible. Like it's in God's holy word and it's a great story. One scholar describes the style of this story like this. Now, this is very important for getting us into this story. He says this, With effective employment of ambiguity, irony, satire, hyperbole, and caricature, he sketches a literary cartoon that pokes fun at the Moabites and brings glory to God. So that's, that's essentially what we get in this story. It's like a literary cartoon. I don't know if you love cartoons, but if you do love cartoons, you'll love this. It's like a literary cartoon which pokes fun at the Moabites and gives glory to God. Isn't that fantastic? That you can poke fun at people and give glory to God at the exact same time. But before we get to the story, let's set it in its context. The context is we're in the book of Judges. This is in the Old Testament. So we're before um, the, the, the coming of Jesus. Israel is God's chosen people who have been set free miraculously from slavery in Egypt. And Moses is their leader. And he has taken them out from Egypt on the way to the promised land. Now, on the way to the promised land, something very significant happens. They stop at a mountain, Mount Sinai, where Israel and God come into covenant relationship where God spells out, here's how you are to live in the land that I am giving you. This is how God's people will live in God's land in that time. And the people say, yes, we will do that. Okay. You will be our God. We will be your people and we will be faithful. The nature of this covenant relationship is not like the, co the new covenant. It is not based entirely on grace. There are gracious elements in this covenant, but by and large, as far as the nation of Israel goes, it's a covenant of works. Do this and live. 
If you do this, you will prosper. If you, if you turn away from the Lord, if you go after idols, well, then judgment will come. Eventually, they come so bad that they actually become, get removed from the land. But right now, they are in the land. Now, as you read the story, you realize that Moses is not actually the one who leads them into the promised land. Right? It's a longer story. We don't have time. But it ends up being Joshua. Joshua takes over uh, Moses' place. But the very first verse of the entire book of Judges, which we're in, says this, after the death of Joshua. So that's kind of where we are. Moses has died. He didn't take him into the promised land. Joshua took him into the promised land. They did a lot of conquering. They didn't conquer everything, but they conquered a lot. It was a good time overall for Israel, but now Joshua has died. The question is, how will Israel go after Joshua? We actually, I want to read this. This These are Joshua's last words that he says to the people of Israel, and it kind of sets up the book of Judges. So this is very helpful. I'm going to read it out. It's It's from Joshua 23, verse 6. Joshua says this, Therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. It's talking about that covenant that was made. Turning aside from it, neither to the right nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand. Since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you, be, ca- be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. I love that. Be so careful. I would say that if I was on the deathbed and I had got, the Lord gave me that. Be so careful to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you. Strong warning. And very clear what will happen either way. Well, judges is the answer. What will happen? Will Israel remain faithful? Will they compromise? One way of asking it is, will Canaan become like Israel or will Israel become like Canaan? It's kind of a question for Christians throughout the, throughout the centuries, isn't it? Will the world become more like the church as we spread the gospel? Or is the church going to become more and more like the world? So chapter 2 of Judges, just before our chapter, lays out the pattern that just goes around and around and around in the book of Judges. And what you have is that the people of Israel rebel against the Lord. They serve idols. God's um, righteous anger is kindled against them. He uses another foreign nation to come in judgment on the people of Israel. They spend some time under, varying amounts of time under this judgment before they cry out to the Lord, the Lord raises up a deliverer. They s- sets the people free. And generally, as long as the deliverer is alive, the people, the people of Israel flourish. They, are, they, are, they have peace. And then, once that ends, they turn back to sin. And around and around and around it goes. In fact, it's not just a kind of flat circle. It's a spiral through the book of Judges. It gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. The sin of Israel gets worse. The judgment they receive gets worse. The, the, the deliverer that gets raised up is more and more weak 
and fallible and sinful. But our story is only the second time around that cycle, okay? So it's not as bad as it gets, but it's not great. So verse 12 kicks us off. Follow along. It says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So that's what we get. We get from the start God's perspective on what Israel are doing, and God looks at it and says, that's evil. That's evil. Now, to be sure, they wouldn't have called it evil, right? But th- their opinion of what they're doing is not as important as what God's opinion is. Now, we know their opinion. Right? The very last verse of the entire book of Judges says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What was right in his own eyes. So if you said, what are you doing? He was like, we're doing what's right. And the Lord looks at the exact same thing and says, that's evil. I find it's just amazing that the, the, the way that the, 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 the narrator of Judges describes the very heart of the problem with their sin is the way that our culture says that's how you determine what is right and good. What is right in your eyes. That's how, that's how our culture talks, isn't it? And the narrator of Judges says, here's the main problem with what they were doing. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. I don't know if you've seen um, this movie, but Moana's grandmother talks to her and gives her advice. And she says, you are your father's daughter, stubbornness and pride. Mind what he says, but remember, you may hear a voice inside. And if that voice starts to whisper to follow the father's star, Moana, that voice inside is who you are. Is it like your dad? He's got some ideas. Listen, but you know, mainly what's going on inside. That's how you know what you ought to do. Wow. God has eyes as well. And he's given his verdict. And God responds in judgment. So the end of verse 12 begins like this The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Now, Eglon just sounds like a bad guy name. I don't know if it, like, like, this is just part of the cartoonish thing. Like, Eglon, you know, you know he's not a good guy, right? Eglon. It reminds me of Sonic's main bad guy. You know, Eggman, you know, anyway. Robotnik, anyway. Besides the point. Okay, so he says, Eglon, the king of Moab against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So he, that is Eglon, gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. You see, so so God strengthens Eglon. And so Eglon gets stronger and he, he kind of accumulates for himself others to kind of come together and defeat Israel. The city that they take is what? The city of Palms, which is the city of Jericho. Isn't that disturbing? Because most of us will know the story of Jericho. God gave Jericho to Israel on their arrival into the promised land, miraculously. They didn't do any, like they didn't really have to do anything. Just God just said, march around it, yell out, and I'll give you that city. And now God takes that city and gives it that very same city, and gives it to Eglon. The name Eglon means bull or calf, but the word is similar to the word that also means round or rotund, which is a kind of a wordplay on the size of this guy, which becomes clearer later in the story. So for 18 years, 
18 years, Israel is ruled by Eglon. This is part of the spiral going down because the first time that they went into, you know, they were judged by a foreign nation, it was for eight years. Well, now it's increased. Now it's 18 years. Why is it 18 years? It's not like God was slower to want to save. It's just, it takes Israel a lot longer to cry out to him. 18 years. So verse 15 says this, Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. So then after those 18 years, cries out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. So just before we move on, notice the centrality of God in all of this. Like his role in everything that's happened so far. Israel did what was evil in his sight. He is the one that strengthens Eglon. They cry out to him, God. God is the one who raises up Ehud. Like the, the whole story is just, it's God at work. Now, what do we know about Ehud? Well, we know a few things, and each of them point to the idea that this is a strange choice for a deliverer, right? If one thing we know, he's the son of Gera. We don't know much about Gera. This doesn't seem like a, a prominent family or a prominent name. He's a Benjaminite. So the first deliverer that came for Israel was from Judah. Right? From the very beginning, people cried out to the Lord, send us a deliverer. If you read the very first few verses of Judges, and then the deliverer comes out of Judah, like the tribe of Judah. Well, the only thing that we've heard from about the tribe of Benjamin so far in the book of Judges is that they failed to defeat their enemies. And so along comes this one, and he's from, I guess you could say, the wrong tribe. But he's also wrong physically. He's left-handed. Now, don't be offended if you're left-handed. That's not have a go at left-handed as such. Oh, I'm not doing it. The Bible is. But it, it, like, the, the, <laughs> the point, it's different times. It's different times, okay? Left-hand is fine now, right? They make things for left-handed people. It's all good. Now, but it's true that the, the right hand is kind of at least symbolically the strong hand, right? The tribe of Benjamin literally means son of my right hand. So here you've got Ehud in the tribe of son of my right hand, and he's a left-hander. God swears by his right hand. He has pleasures at his right hand. God's chosen one sits at his right hand. So, of course, if Ehud was right-handed, it wouldn't get mentioned. It would just be another normal deliverer. But he's left-handed. And so that makes him a different kind of deliverer, a strange kind, even a weak kind. So that was the sense of the left hand. It was the weaker hand. We have a weak, if you like, deliverer. I wonder where you might think we might go with that later on. The name Ehud means, where is the splendor? Or where is the majesty? That's the guy. That's the guy that God is raising up to deliver his people. The guy whose name is, where is the splendor? Verse 15 ends, the people of Israel sent tribute by him, that's Ehud. So they're sending tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. So that's really interesting to us because we know something that Eglon doesn't know, that the guy who's coming to bring the tribute is the guy that God's raised up to deliver his people. So we wonder, huh, I wonder what will happen. And we're told that he has a plan in verse 16, says this, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. So that's about 18 inches. I think one and a half Subway sandwiches like that. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. So Ehud obviously sees this trip 
to give tribute to Eglon as an opportunity. It's an opportunity for assassination. So he custom makes a weapon for the occasion. I just love it. I imagine a movie in that kind of scene of him just creating this, 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 this sword. Notice the detail. So it's 18 inches, right? So short enough that he could hide it, but long enough that it can do some serious damage. It has two edges. It's a double-edged sword. So he's going to go for a straight stab, not a single-sided hack. Sorry if that's graphic. I didn't mean that. It's just in the Bible. <laughs> it gets more graphic. Okay. And being left-handed, he can put it on his right thigh when no one would expect to find a sword. So verse 17 then says, And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. You think, that's, is that necessary? You know, to the story, to, have, you know, to kind of shame, that body shame this guy. Um, it seems a bit over the top. It seems like, I mean, the poor guy, he probably has, you know, whatever. But anyway, it's, na it's named not just to have a go at the guy, right? There's more to it. It's going to play a role in the story. But I think also, it, it kind of is actually, it's trying to paint a picture of him, which is a kind of cartoonish, villainous kind of picture. Like, I just picture this, you got, you got to picture, think cartoony, you know, like just a grotesque guy, you know, sitting in his, the city of palms, you know, like in his opulence and his, and his, and his throne room, and he's just this massive guy, I just see him hocking on a big chunk of chicken and, you know, like just grease all over his face, like that kind of cartoonish, villainous guy, that's the picture. And remember, Eglon's name means calf. So what do we have? We have a fattened calf ready to be slaughtered. What we have is Jabba the Hutt, I think. Okay, in a sense. Like, you know, because that's the kind of picture of Jabba, isn't it? You know, and, 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 and Luke Skywalker's coming in with a hidden lightsaber. If you know, you know, right? So, okay, so verse 18. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. So Ehud delivers the tribute, but then he and his crew leave, but they arrive at Gilgal, and he says, you guys go on ahead, I'm actually going to turn back. Now, it's, it's significant, I think, that he turns back at Gilgal. At Gilgal, has been mentioned a couple times already in the first two chapters of Judges, Firstly, it's where God and his people made a covenant together, re-covenanted re themselves. You will be our God. We will be your people. That happened at Gilgal. And it was in chapter 2, it's from Gilgal that an angel comes from, it says, comes from Gilgal to Israel to, 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 to correct them because of their compromise with, with other gods and other nations. And so here we are at Gilgal again, and what's there with, at Gilgal? What does he find? Idols. There are idols at the place that Israel and God made a covenant together. Where the, Isra where, where the angel came and said, don't do that. They're worshipping idols at Gilgal. It gives you the sense that this, this story is not just about armies. This is a spiritual problem. Israel are worshipping idols in the one place of all places they ought not to. Canaanite gods worshipped where they'd covenanted with God. So he gets back to Eglon. So he turns from the idols of Gilgal. He heads back to Eglon and he says to the king, what's his line? I have a secret message for you, 
O king. You know, their first meeting must have gone well, right? There was a bit of trust built up, and he arrives as like, yeah, oh, yeah, this is, this is Ead. He's the guy that brought the tribute to me. Yeah, what, 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 what's happening? I have a secret message for you. Oh, and you see his kind of villain. Oh, yeah, well, of course you would. Yeah, like that sounds good. I like having secret messages. But what it paints him additionally to everything else that the picture has painted so far is that he's not super intelligent, Right? It's like, oh, a secret man. Like it's a classic, oh, oh, come here, I have a secret for you, you know. Oh, man, come on. So it says this, he, that's Eglon, commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. I just imagine Ehud going, this is so easy. This is crazy. He's just sent out everyone. It's just us. Verse 20, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. Now, the cool roof chamber is that part of the palace where you could go and rest and relax and a cool breeze would come through. And so that was a very nice spot. And it's also the spot where the toilet was, okay? Again, that's just what the Bible says. So he's there. In fact, going to the toilet is what he's doing while he's up there, okay? That becomes clearer as we go. So he's there by himself. Ehud is there, just the two of them, in this cool roof chamber setting, and Ehud says, I have a message from God for you. So he repeats himself, but he adds this time, the divine. Now, that, you, you, you might click something, he's like, huh, what's going on? But for Eglon, vain as he probably was, he's like, yeah, well, of course, that makes sense. God would have a message for me. Very believable. So it says, and he arose from his seat. Probably not easy for him to do that, but it puts him in a situation where he's very vulnerable. He's expecting an oracle from God, but right, right in that moment, the unexpected, at least to him, happens. Um, now, the, what would have happened is quite quick, but the narrative notice, it slows right down, and it gives blow-by-blow de blow detail. So it's almost like if it was a movie, slow-motion action. It says, And he had reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. Eglon excited to hear this secret message that the Lord has for him. Well, what is the message? It's a double-edged sword into his belly. It says, And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. I don't blame him. I wouldn't go searching for that sword either. I mean, even if it's a handmade original, you know, there'll be other swords. You don't go chasing the sword. Then it says this, and the dung came out, which I don't think is funny at all. I don't know if you find that funny. Shame on you if you think that's funny. Actually, it's quite funny um, because <laughs> we were actually in the car on the way here. We thought, you know how people sometimes have Bible verses in their toilet? That would be like, that'd be like an inspirational one <laughs> on the back of the, and the dung came out. Well, that's a good, that's, it's, um, it's appropriate. Kylan said no, so <laughs> it's not going to happen. But I've never seen that verse on no T-shirt or coffee mug, eh, on someone's fridge. Uh, but there it is in the Bible. So, and, it, and it's painting a picture of Eglon, that we're just meant to, what we are meant to laugh at him, I think. Eglon's now dead, but the story isn't. Actually, there's more shame to heap on this man still. Verse 23, then Ehud went out on, into the porch... So the hero went out 
into the porch and closed the doors of the cool of the roof chamber behind him and he locked them. So Ehud is he's a very clever mover. So he gets out, he locks the doors. That does a couple of things. It gives him time to escape. And it also, um, the guards who are outside kind of clueless as to what's going on. The doors are locked and they don't really know what's going on. They, didn't, they don't see Ehud leave. And so, I mean, they don't know how long it takes to share a message from God to their, their, their Lord. And so, kind of standing there waiting and waiting and waiting. But they look like they're pretty clueless. You know, if you, again, if it's a cartoon, they're those hopeless henchmen who are just like, pretty docile, well, the king's been killed and he's gone. And they're just waiting, standing guard. Verse 24, when he had gone, that's Ehud, when he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, well, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Surely he's on the toilet. Of course, it, it smelt like he was on the toilet because the dung had come out. So they have a key to the room, but they don't want to go into the room because that's a private thing and Eglon might get angry. And so they just stand there and they wait. They wait a while. Verse 25 says, and they waited till they were embarrassed. They were embarrassed. You know, I mean, that's, how long is that? I don't know. You know it's like there's, there's a length of time where it's embarrassing for the person on the toilet. How long is it before everyone else is like, this is embarrassing for everyone? Mate, get it done. You know, like, finish up. But when he still did not open the doors of the, cool, of the roof chamber, you're going to say cool roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there, what does it say? And there lay their Lord, dead on the floor. puts it, there's your Lord. He's laying on the floor dead in his, a pool of his own feces. You imagine the sight of that. You imagine the smell of that. It's really degrading. Verse 26 says that the time now has been long enough that Ehud has been able to escape and it explicitly mentions that he, he walked straight past the idols again at Gilgal where he turned around. So at this point, all that's left now is to defeat the Moabite army. Ehud goes back, he sounds the trumpet, People follow him into battle. He says in verse 28, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. You see the reversal of the whole story? How did it begin? God strengthened Eglon to defeat Israel. Now what does Ehud say? The Lord is about to give them into your hand. The whole thing is reversed. Verse 29 emphasizes the magnitude of the victory in three different ways. The number that's killed, 10,000 Moabites. Probably not an exact, there was exactly 10,000, but it's about 10,000, just signifying complete annihilation, complete victory. Second, the health of the Moabites says that they were all, all strong, able-bodied men. So it doesn't want you to think they're a bunch of Eglons that they defeated. They were all strong, able-bodied men. And third, it says that none of them escaped. Verse 30 concludes then. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest for 80 years. 80 years. That's God's grace. That's God's grace. You know, they were under judgment for 18 years, and he gives them 80 years of peace. So, what's the point? I mean, it's a good story, but what is the point of the story? 
I think a couple things. The most obvious thing is it is trying to mock. Notice how the, I think it mocks the idols. I think it mocks idol worshippers. I think it mocks even just all the enemies of God. It mocks idols. You notice the, the way it mocks the idols? The whole narrative of, of the, the assassination is bookended by mention of the idols at Gilgal. It's from the idols at Gilgal that he turns. And then it's the idols that he walks straight past after he's done the job. I think that's intentional. Just to go, they did nothing. They just, there they are, as they were before, doing absolutely nothing. Whilst this guy goes and kills the king who worships them, who puts his trust in them, hopes that they will protect him, hopes that they will provide for him, he turns around at them and he walks straight back. I just imagine him kind of tipping his hat to them, going, you're still there. There you are. Well, you just stay there. You just keep doing you and I'm going to... Because they're useless. They've done nothing. I think it designs the story so that we see that the real conflict in this story is not actually physical, it's spiritual. This story is not ultimately Ehud versus Eglon. It's Yahweh versus the idols. And who is the clear winner of that, vict- of that battle? The idols do nothing while their king is humiliated and killed. Idols are, in the end, pictured as helpless, clueless, and useless as Eglon himself. But actually, the idol and the idol worshipper become quite similar in the story. Both, both like useless, useless realities because of his trust put in someone else, which is obviously contrasted with Ehud, who serves Yahweh. Ehud is presented like this crazy like ninja, you know. He's like just making swords and putting them there, and he's, 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 he's clever, like he's like, I've got a secret for you, and like he's just this, and he just escapes without anyone noticing, stealth-like. Idolatry is portrayed in the, in the Bible in a lot of different ways. So it, just in the chapter before in Judges, it was presented as adultery which makes sense, that the people of God and God and their union is sometimes portrayed, often portrayed in the Bible as a marriage. So then if you turn from God and worship idols, it says that's, a, that's adultery. The, 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 the chapter just before this one, that's adultery. You're playing the prostitute, it says. But this is another way that the Bible talks about idols. It's just they're dumb. Like it's just stu- it's, it's stupid. It's, it's so silly to trust in these things. Because notice this, as soon as God's people cry out to him, their enemies evaporate effortlessly. Which actually says something about Israel as well. I mean, one thing that's worse than kind of being Eglon and all of that and being that is Israel was ruled by that guy. They were ruled by him for 18 years, sat under, his, under, under him. And what, what happens? The moment they cry out to the Lord, he's gone. I just think... We could have done that 17 years ago. Well, they could have, because such is the power and the might of Yahweh. So then after a little while of kind of paying out on Israel and their silliness, you do have to eventually come back to us and go, hmm, well, we do that kind of thing too, don't we? Um, the New Testament talks about sin like idolatry that when we turn to things, and it's just a good thing to think, to step back from our idol and the struggles with temptation and go, actually, that thing is so dumb. 
you know, it, it, like it, it's, a, it's many things, it's evil and all that. And it's kind of dumb. It's kind of silly how slow we are to turn to the Lord in our times of trouble as well, isn't it? Like it doesn't make much sense. He's always been faithful before. It's silly to think that I might be able to earn my way to heaven. That we fall into that, hey, no, I've got to be good so that God, the almighty, holy, pure one, will be happy with me. It's a silly thought. How silly to give up so much of our time and our thoughts and our strategy in our lives, not to things of eternity, but just temporary things that are gone in a moment. You know, I remember someone giving an illustration like that. Like we, you know, this, our time on earth is so short, really. It's like, it's, it's as if you would, you'd catch the train into the city and while you're in there, you'd start hanging up kind of paintings and, and painting the, the walls and get the nice rug out. And, and you'd be like, brother, you're going to be off this train very soon. It's kind of the silliness. Like, yeah, like you spent so much time on this temporary, we've got an eternity coming. We'll be off this train very soon. It's silly, our idolatry. How crazy for the person who's been accepted. It's crazy to be accepted and loved by God Almighty, died for, sins paid for, his child, and be so concerned with the thoughts of the world and people's opinions of us. How dumb are we when we go back to our old sins again and again and again? Isn't it silly? It's like, you've gone back again? I've gone back again? That thing didn't do anything for me last time. It only gave me guilt and shame and regret. And I had to sit and wallow in the because I fell for that thing again 3,000 times later. And I'm still going back to that thing. It's just ridiculous. When God is on offer, the things of God are on offer that make, give us great joy. Part of the question is, are you tired of being fooled or playing the fool? I think it's encouraging to see the way God rules over his, all his enemies. Because I think in Australia, like we, Christians, it, it could get a bit nervous about the way Australia is heading, right? And that already there's, there's different ways in which it's harder, it's harder now than even just 10 years ago to be a Christian in Australia. And we get nervous about kind of where things are going. But it is, it's encouraging to see that in the end, God's enemies, they're kind of like, they're gone. Like they're kind of nothing in the end of the day. I think that's super encouraging, especially to Christians suffering real persecution throughout the world. Um, Psalm 2 verses 1 to 4 goes like this. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Hear what it says next. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. That's what they're kind of like. The nation's raging, they're plotting against the Lord, and he laughs. Please. You know, that's what the kind of vision that we need to have of the Lord in our day. Throughout the, that, that the enemies of God are kind of like this Eglon, and he is Yahweh. God actually has done that already. He has treated our greatest enemy like Eglon. Who's our greatest enemy? Satan. Remember Colossians 2.14 says this, By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and what did he do? He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God did to Satan 
what Ehud did to Eglon, which was ultimately Yahweh, put him to shame, public spectacle, embarrassed him. So this story is ultimately about God, hey? It's not ultimately about us and how we can, I don't know, be more skilled with our left hands. And it's not about weight, you know? Eglon's fat, Ehud's, be slim for him, you know, kind of. That's not what it's about. The story reminds us how God uses, I think, unexpected, strange deliverers. So you can't help but being reminded of Jesus, I think, at the end of the day. Both Jesus and Ehud, a few things. Both Jesus and Ehud come from unpromising beginnings. Ehud from Benjamin, Jesus from Nazareth. You remember Nathaniel said, what good, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Both had the appearance of weakness rather than strength. Both Jesus and Ehud faced their enemy alone and overcame. Both Jesus and Ehud call others to share in the victory that they claim on their behalf. Both made a mockery of their enemies. The main thing about both of them is just that they're unlikely, strange, surprising heroes, victors, saviors. Um, Jay Warner Wallace, he poses this question, and he's got a book called Person of Interest, and it just how statistically unlikely it was that G, the message of Jesus would take off. Let me just read this little section. It's amazing. So just think about this. Jesus was born in a tiny, irrelevant town in the Roman Empire and raised in another small village. He had to walk from one place to the next, and as an adult, he never traveled more than 200 miles from the town where he was born. He had none of the resources people use today to make an impact, no social media platform, no podcast audience, no clever videos, and no website. He didn't even have the resources people used in the first century to make an impact. He never held a political office, never ruled a nation, never led an army, and never authored a book. His family was insignificant. The locals suspected he was an illegitimate son, his mother was a poor peasant woman, and his father couldn't afford much. Jesus didn't receive an expensive education, never married, never had children, never owned a home of his own, and didn't possess much more than the clothes on his back. As an adult, his own brother was suspicious of his ministry, a work that ended just after three short years. Public public opinion turned against him, most of his followers abandoned him, one disciple betrayed him and another denied him. He was rejected by the religious, hunted by the powerful, mocked and unjustly persecuted by his enemies. He suffered an unfair trial, was publicly humiliated, brutally beaten and unduly executed in the most horrific way. Even then, the few followers who remained had to borrow a grave to bury him. Yet this is the man who changed history, inaugurated the common era and forever transformed the most important and revered aspects of human culture. How is it possible that a single man, a man like Jesus, could have this impact? You just couldn't see it coming. So when God chooses to use Ehud, the left-hander from Benjamin, I think we're meant to think, and he used, it's like someone's like that. That's kind of the way God works sometimes. Remember the way Isaiah 53 describes Jesus? He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He wasn't esteemed. Why? Because we know saviors don't come like that. They come strong. They come brave and they come like powerful. And people mocked him on the cross. He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. 
Well, he said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. That's not a genuine if, like I'm interested. If you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself and then I'll believe. No, it's like you're not the king of the Jews, so you can't save yourself. They're mocking him. We live in a world where instead of seeing the foolishness of idols, we see the foolishness of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Eglon, he looked at God's chosen deliverer and he esteemed him not. What harm could this guy bring? Not threatened. Didn't take him seriously. One thing, last thing to notice in the story, which kind of wraps it up, um, is that it's full of sacrificial language. This is amazing. We've already mentioned that Eglon's name means bull or calf, which is a common sacrificial animal. He is, like we said before, he's a fattened calf. The tribute that Ehud brings is the word used for offering that you might bring to an altar. The language of Ehud bringing near, that, that word bringing near the tribute, is a sacrificial language of a worshipper bringing the sacrifice to the altar. The word for Ehud's blade is literally flame. Ehud stabs him and there's a sense in which he treats Eglon like a burnt offering. What does all that mean? Think think about this. What frees God's people from the snare of their sin? A sacrifice. What frees us, God's people, from our sin? The silliness of our sin, because we're all silly sinners. Another sacrifice but this is where Jesus and Ehud are different. You see, Eglon, Ehud sacrifices Eglon. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer who sacrifices himself on the cross in our place for our sin so that we can be saved from the silliness of our own sin and the judgment it deserves. And he makes a mockery of the enemy that we have in Satan. Amazing. When Ehud tells Eglon that he has a message from God for him, I have a message from God for you, and here's my two-edged sword, what do you immediately think of? I mean, there's just so much in this story, isn't it? Can you believe how much illusions and then pointers there are to the New Testament and the Lord Jesus? Everywhere in the Bible that mentions a two-edged sword, it's always combined with speech. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Naked and exposed. That's what we are. Before the two-edged sword of God's word. In Revelation, we have Jesus, the King of kings, coming to judge nations, vindicate his people. Revelation 1.16 says this, In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth, mouth, speak, mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. I think the death of Eglon, with a message from the Lord, and it's a two-edged sword, points forward to the time when all people will stand before the judge of all the world, and he will have a two-edged sword out, coming out of his mouth. We will all stand before him one day. We'll all stand before him one day. That day, that sword will judge and there will be some, like the sheep and the goats, there will be a great separation. 
if our trust has been put in the ultimate deliverer who came for us, died for us, strange though this deliverer might seem to us, it is God's way of saving people. And praise God for it. Well, if you do that, that'll be a wonderful day for us. We'll be saved along with his victory and we will get to inherit not just another 80 years of peace, everlasting peace with him forever. And pray. Father, we thank you for uh, just your revelation. We, wouldn't know, we just wouldn't know any of this if you didn't reveal it to us and give us these insights about the way you work. Father, help us to, not, to see foolishness in sin and glory in the cross and never the other way around. Have us to put our faith and our trust in you, that you have loved us to the very end. You've died, you've sent your son, the Lord Jesus, to die for us and rise again to give us brand new life. I pray that be true for every heart in this room. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.